Romans 5, let's get there. Electronic devices, the ancient written word, whatever your preference is. Uh, We are at a wonderful passage today, kind of a hot topic passage. I was interested in what we were going to be hearing from this passage when I saw this in the future. I thought, ah, I wonder what I'm going to do. I wonder what God has in store for us on this passage. All right, Paul Zoll is the author of Who Will Deliver Us? The Present Power of the Death of Christ. Tells a story of Frank. Frank's a member of his church. Now, when I read that initially, and I, I noticed how liberally he would sprinkle in per, personal anecdotes of people in his church, I started thinking to myself, you know, you know, when I start writing books, I promise you all, I make this promise right now, I will never ever use your real name in the book, okay? I might use you, but not your real name, Frank. So Frank is a member of his church, and Frank was baptized as an infant, confirmed at the age of 14 within the Episcopal Church. During his first year of college, Frank left the church and became agnostic. His sophomore year, he had a crisis, a point of crisis, and he had a conversion experience through a campus ministry, an evangelical campus ministry on the church. So he was rebaptized in a river. During his senior year, he was influenced by a friend who was in the charismatic renewal movement, and he got interested in that. And so he was baptized again, but this time in the Holy Spirit, and he received the, the gift of tongues. After college, Frank starts a job, but the slow process of disillusionment started settling into his life because he started looking back. As he started experiencing more and more of life, he started looking back at all the experiences that he had, and he started suspecting them. Like, were they really true? What is it about these experiences? And so he, he spiraled into this disillusionment and just left the church altogether and dropped out of Christian fellowship. In his late 20s, though, an intellectual quest had begun, and he started reading Roman Catholic traditional writers. At the age of 30, Frank was convinced he had found the true church and became Roman Catholic. Now, if you're like me, you're probably wondering, all right, did this, did this end his search? Did he finally, did Frank finally come to an end of his search for the experience or the knowledge that was going to heal him or do whatever it was supposed to do in his life that he was looking for? Well, at age 35, his marriage ended in divorce. Four years later, he wanted to remarry, but the church he was a part of wouldn't allow him to remarry. They rebuffed him, so he left the church. Ironically, he ends up where it all began, back at the Episcopal Church. That is Frank's story. And then there's Cindy's story. And there's Sam's story. And there's Bubba's story. And there's Barbara's story. And there's your story. What is your story? What is your story? You know what's incredibly, wonderfully comforting and powerful about this passage? The passage we are about to look at was given by God to help you understand your story. This passage is specifically given so that you will come to understand yourself in perhaps a new way, certainly in a deeper way, but for one goal and one goal only, and that is so that you and I actually begin to find ourselves 
in the story of another. And in that, come alive. And in that, live your life. And in that, build your relationships. And in that, participate in the mission that God has for you in other people's lives. So, let's stand and hear God's word. I will be taking Gatorade copiously through this sermon because I am still dehydrated. Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death death reigned from Adam to Moses. Yet even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word of the Lord. Rebecca. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the reality of the story of the world packed into this passage and the wonder of two Adams. Lord, would you help us understand? Would you give clarity to our mind and realness to our heart? Would you shine on the page? Would you carry the burden of all of that for us this morning? And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, this is a hotly contested passage. Uh, The famous Christian statesman John Stott says of this passage, all students of verses 12 through 21 have found it extremely condensed. Some students have mistaken comprehension for confusion, but most have admired its craftsmanship. It may be likened to a well-chiseled carving or a carefully constructed musical composition. That's not how I would have described this passage, but that's pretty interesting, isn't it? This is a hotly contested passage for one reason. And that reason is this. It's telling us that our story was actually written by someone else. Right now, what's going on in your life is actually been written and put there and you're wrestling with it because of someone else. And that's a tough, tough, for Americans, <laughs> for, for throwing in your hat for democracy, that's a tough thing for us to hear. Look at Romans five twelve. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now remember, 
Remember those 64 verses of doom that we saw in Romans? 118 through 320? You remember the, the, the incredible valleys of doom and darkness that Paul walked us through? Do you see the therefore in chapter 5, in this verse 12? All of Romans is being interpreted now by this passage. So you have therefore is going to give us the foundation of all the doom that was just talked about. 64 verses of doom, 118 through 320. And then in 321 to this passage, we were given the wonder of justification. So you have passages, verses of doom, the wonder of justification. Therefore, now we're given the root system. We're given the structure. We're given the foundation that actually supports these two stories of the world. Doom is a story of the world. The wonder of justification is another story of the world. This is why verse 12 is telling us where the doom came from. It's telling us why doom is here. It's telling us why you experience doom. Look at 5.12 again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam is here to help you understand yourself. Adam is here to help you understand why you and everyone around you is so messed up. Adam is here to help you understand why you don't work right no matter how hard you try to fix it. No matter, like Frank, how many new experiences you have in life, religious or irreligious, no matter how many new attainments of knowledge you accomplish, you still don't work right. No matter how much education and information and technology and all the stuff that's opening up in our world, how we still can't fix it. Adam is here to help you understand why witnesses say a young black man who was 25 years old in Baltimore came stumbling out of a police van, struggling to breathe, and begging for his inhaler. And why we know now, somehow, mysteriously, he got his throat crushed and his spine severed. Adam is here to help you understand that. Just as sin came into the world through one man. This means more than one sinful act brought sin into the world. What this is saying is that Adam's one sinful act released into the world a new sinister power. A power that Paul describes as a dark Lord that reigns and rules, as a dark Lord that reigns and rules and ravages like a wild beast that enslaves, he says later in Romans, imprisons and breaks down everything it touches. It touches a life. When the sinister power comes into a life, it breaks the life down. It actually undoes what was created. It disintegrates it. It brings decay. It brings death to it. Relationships, communities, homes, institutions, 
Anything that comes in contact with this new sinister power is undone. It disintegrates, decreates. And then Paul says it does so, though, in the worst kind of way. It does so not against our will and our desires, but actually with it. Paul actually tells us in Romans that we want it. That we want to trust this sinister power to heal us. That we actually desire to hope in it and think that it will put us back together again and actually give us life and salvation. Sin came into the world through one man is saying, open your eyes. It came to you too. It has messed you up too. So those of you who are married, you need to know that you are the problem too. That's what this means. Children, what it says to you is your parents aren't the only problem. You're the problem too. Students, in your classes, your professor is not the only problem. You're the problem too. At your job, at the gym. Those of you who are struggling with particular sin, more rules and more laws, what we tend to think is, ah, if I just get more rules and more laws, can you just give me more avoidance strategies? Can you, can you give me more exhortations and calls to be holy? I need to hear that stuff. Can you give me more imperatives and commands? Can you give me some constructive ways to control my life? And Paul says, it won't change a thing. It won't change it. It's like bringing a squirt gun to a gunfight. Later, he's going to say it's actually in Romans 7. Those things are actually going to make it worse in your life. The sinister power will get worse in your life. He's going to say in chapter 7, look, you don't, you don't need swimming instructions. You need a rescue. Some of you are more melancholy in personality, and you might say, but listen, Jeff, you call it melancholy. I'm a realist. Fine. Whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you feel better, you can be a realist. Um, and you, you look at the world, and it's not that you want to. It's not that you, you want to think this way and you want to feel this way. You just do. You see it this way. You feel it deeply this way. You know the world is so dark. And you know people are so dark. And you know you are so dark. And Romans... 5.12 says to you, you know what it says to you? You're right. You actually are living in reality. But it also says to you, move past the first Adam to the second Adam. So let's do that. Look at verse 15 and 18. The rest of them, you got 12 through 14 is the first Adam, 15 through 21 is the second Adam, you know, we're not going to deal with all the technicalities that are going in there in 12. We're not going to deal with representation, and we're not going to deal with how one person represented us all. I think all of us have an idea that you didn't choose to be born where you were born. Someone else 
chose to do something that got you here. They didn't even cause that. But there are choices that are made in life that are done in a human solidarity and not in an individual reality. And that affects us. And that might be for you, you need to hear that. You need to hear that someone actually can make a choice for you that impacts you. Happens all the time in governments, it happens all the times in families, and it happens all the times in traditional cultures. It's less happening in an individualistic culture like ours, but it still happens. And in fact, in, in other cultures, they look at our rugged, ragged individualism and they say, that's just weird. The same way we look at a, a solidarity or a representative or a father or a family or a tribal leader or a government can make a decision that infects everybody. They think a worldview outside of that is weird. This individualism is weird. So we're both weird. Both cultures think it's weird. I don't think it helps us. Intellectually, it might. But I think I like Augustine's tack. When Augustine was dealing with Pelagius, and Pelagius was questioning this, how can one man impact everybody? I'm responsible for my life. I make my own decisions. I choose to sin. That's what does it. And Augustine said, okay, that's fair. It's fair. But he he went after the experience. He said, listen, though, Pelagius, if all sin is voluntary, why does everybody volunteer? Verse 15, but the free gift, what's the free gift? The hints is in verse 17. It's not like the trespass. What's a trespass? This is Adam's sin. Theologians call it original sin, the trespass. Uh, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. All right, now drop down to 18. Therefore, as one trespass, again, original sin, led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. Here's the point. The point is the second Adam, the first Adam released a new sinister power into the world. The second Adam releases a stronger power into the world called the grace of God. Do you see that in verse 15? That word abounded, you know what that means? It means to be more than enough, and it means to be more than enough in such a sense that there are leftovers. In other words, you got Jesus' one act of righteousness. Do you see it? This one act of righteousness. You know what that means? It means a comprehensive salvation. It means a completed work of Jesus. It means it's taken, one act of righteousness is describing all of Jesus' complete work, his comprehensive work of his incarnation, his perfect life of obedience, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. One act of righteousness has released grace into the world to such an extent that there's more than enough. In fact, there's only leftovers of grace. So, the grace of God overwhelms sin, overwhelms death, overwhelms darkness, overwhelms your shame and your guilt, so much so that all that's left when it hits it is leftovers of grace. The grace of God overwhelms death and swallows it up so much so there's none of it left, just leftovers of grace. That's what abounded 
means. So encounter, bring in this abundant grace of God, the super abundant grace of God, bring that into your marriage. When you're stuck in your marriage, bring the abounding, abundant, more than enough, grace left over work of Jesus into that area. When you're feeling sorry for yourself, encounter the overwhelming abundance of the grace of God. When you need to forgive somebody, encounter the second Adam's overabounding grace. When you need to go ask for forgiveness and it feels like worse than pulling teeth, it's like a traumatic experience, you're having an emotional like, I don't know, disconnection, like Fonzie from Happy Days who can't say what, I'm wrong? You have a contact with the overabundance of the grace of God. Encounter superabounding grace with the second Adam of that particular sin you struggle with. This is now, we talked about when you take laws and rules and exhortations and willpower, when you bring that to our particular sin, it's like bringing a squirt gun to a gunfight. Well, now you're going to bring a nuke to a pillow fight. What's that particular sin that you struggle with? What is it? You got it? Now, Jesus died for that sin. He took that sin and he took it to the grave and killed it. It's even better than that. Jesus took that particular sin and became it himself. He became that sin. It's called imputation and transfer. Jesus takes all your sin, that particular sin, takes it on himself and he becomes that sin. He becomes a sinner. And all of its breakdown and all of its misery and all of its anxiety and all of its insecurity and all of its decreative powers, he took on himself and killed it. You are free from it. Please hear me. You are free from it while you struggle with it. While you struggle with that particular sin, you are at the same time free from it. Look at verse 17. Do you see the contrast that's going on there? You see, the, you see death reigning? What do you expect to be the, the parallelism there? Death reigning, you expect to hear what? Life reigning, right? That's what you expect. But notice what he does, what Paul does. He slips death reigning. You expect life reigning, but instead he slips you reign. You reign over death. You reign over sin. In the story of Jesus, in the second Adam, you reign. So when you fight and struggle against that particular sin, you do so as one who reigns over it, not as one who's enslaved to it. So the way you fight it 
is you be who you already are. You're victorious already. Look at verse 12. This also helps us understand. Adam helps us understand why we're so radically insecure. Have you ever wondered that? If you're sitting here and you say, I'm not radically insecure, I'm sorry, but you're actually worse than someone who actually feels radically insecure. It's like, I don't want you to feel good. The rest of us can't either, right? We're all radically insecure, and Adam helps us understand why. In the core, why in the core of our being, there's this radical sense of unworthiness and shame. Do you remember what happened? What did, how was Adam and Eve, how were they described after they sinned? Do you remember in Genesis 3, they were what and what? They were naked and ashamed. That is the first time it came into the world and it came in as a new sinister power that inflicted every human being that comes into the world to this day, to this moment, whatever baby's born, they come into, within their core of their being, a desperate nakedness and a desperate shame that is unrecoverable in and of themselves. Nakedness means exposure. Nakedness means a deep sense of unworthiness. In the core of our being, sin comes into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Death here is describing this reality. It's called a double death. Scholars look at this death and they describe it as physical and spiritual. Uh, Now there's a, a triple death. It's called eternal death. So if you want to get all the deaths together, you've got a physical death, a spiritual death, and eternal death. Now, when you're reading the Bible, you've got to make a decision textually. Is it talking about a physical death, a spiritual death, uh, an eternal death, all three, or just one or two of them? The context will help you do that. But it's important to know that a, a complete death, the death from which there's completion, is physical, spiritual, and eternal. Okay? In this text, it's talking about the physical and the spiritual. Death here, death in the Bible is the ultimate loss. It's the loss of God, so it's the loss of life itself. It means when you die spiritually, you're cut off or you're exiled from God. In the garden, it meant to be banished from God. You, you leave God, the source of life. And in so doing, it radically, it radically changes us. Spiritually, psychologically, relationally, socially, institutionally, everything gets turned inside and out. Everything is infected with death to such an extent that Paul says it reigns, it controls, it's everywhere. That's why in 16 and 18, Paul calls it condemnation. In 14 and 17, he calls it death reigning. What he's describing is that you have the sentence of judgment and you have the execution of it in a condition or state, all at the same time. So it's a sentence of being condemned, it's a sentence of being judged, but then it's actually experiencing the condemnation and experiencing the judgment, that's death. Death means in the core of our being, we feel an overwhelming sense of a hostile force against us, condemning us, judging us. We feel naked in the core of our being. We feel stripped and exposed. We feel unworthy in the core of our being. We feel shame, which is a diminishment of yourself till there's nothing of you left. A non-being, that's shame. 
nakedness, shame, complete loss of self. That's the human condition. That's why you're so radically insecure. That's why you take things so personal with other people. That's why you desperately want to prove yourself in music or as a professor or as an athlete or in being a class clown or whatever it is or have the biggest truck. That's why. That's why we're ultra competitive. I'm as competitive as they come. But there's this ultra competitiveness that it's like, if I don't do this, I cease to exist. That's why we are. And that's why we withdraw. Or we don't try to do something because if you do try and do fail, you lose yourself, so don't try because you can kind of protect yourself. We are radically insecure, and out of this radical insecurity, we all live our lives. We all live our lives desperately naked and trying to clothe ourselves. What's the first thing God does to Adam and Eve when he announces that there is a hero coming? He clothes them. We spend our lives trying to deal with this radical insecurity by trying to protect ourselves from the relentless, hostile power of condemnation. The Bible, Paul has already called it in Romans, self-justification. So we're trying to clothe ourselves and we're trying to protect ourselves at the same time and that's your story and that's my story. Isn't it good to know why you do what you do? Now, let's go to the story of another. And let's see how he meets these two realities. Your justification and your condemnation fear. That's what's happening in these passages. Do you see what's happening? One man's act brings condemnation, shame. Another man's act brings justification and life. So, those of you that are married, we fight to be understood. Why do we fight to be understood? Because our justification's at stake. Of course. Why do we have to be right? Because our very justification's at stake. Why do we withdraw? Because when we withdraw, because we sense or we perceive someone's judgment or criticism against us, we withdraw because it's tapping into, it's, it's opening the trap door of that deep, deep radical insecurity that's already there. It's like, a, it's like touching a live wire. It's like going into the central nervous system and hitting that fear of condemnation, that nakedness that we feel, and someone's criticism goes in and zaps it, and it hits us. We withdraw. Those of you struggling with a particular sin, the reason why we're pursuing laws and rules and exhortations and avoidance strategies is because we're, we're trying to, we fear punishment and we're trying to justify ourselves. All right, Paul Zoll, he wrote, Who Will Deliver Us? This is what he says. For St. Paul, sanctification is the continual process of receiving the word of justification. Oh, this is good. So you want to grow sanctified. You want to have a changed life. You want to have a healed life. He's saying it's hearing the word of justification and it's that word going into unreached areas of your life, which we looked at last week. He goes on. The process is as long as life itself, reaching to the darker continents within ourselves and our culture than we ever knew existed. Sanctification is justification by extension. It's justification, the grace of God going into your life in different areas. 
Naturally, though, sadly, many of us want ethical prescriptions from the pulpit, and we want moral exhortations, and we want calls to holiness. That desire is what the New Testament refers to as the flesh. The actual sinful nature inside of us wants to be our own savior. The natural sinful nature in all of us wants to deal with judgment on our own. We want to clothe ourselves. Justification from Jesus is the only thing that deals with that. So encountering Jesus in ever fresh ways actually gives you, as, it, as justification goes into your relationships and areas of your life and becomes more real, and you start resting in it, you actually start erupting with a love for God. You actually start getting a changed life. You actually start growing in grace. Watch how this happens. Verse 16, the free gifts, not like the result of one man's sin. Judgment came through one trespass and brought condemnation. The free gift which is the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Jesus. That's what's defined in 17. The free gift is the righteousness of Jesus. That gives you uh, justification. Therefore, one trespass led to condemnation. Here's condemnation again. For all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification. See how one Adam, second Adam. So what this means is encounter Jesus' justification. Adam, the second Adam's justification in your marriage. So what happens? You start feeling the need to justify yourself, to prove yourself. You start feeling the need that you got to be understood. You have to be understood. Now, now you start settling in and saying, but Jesus, you're my righteousness. And you start resting in his righteousness. And you start realizing what that means is Jesus never, ever needed to be understood by anyone. And he didn't need to be understood and he never sought to be understood by folks for you. He always loved others perfectly in his thoughts and his words and his deeds for you. So when you rest in his righteousness, you are actually free to no longer need to be understood because He never sought to be understood for you and you now rest in that righteousness and you have his righteousness. You don't need to fight to be understood. You can actually stand there and be okay and be misunderstood. Encounter the justification of the second Adam and that particular sin you're struggling with. Again, let's bring a newt to a pillow fight. Jesus, take that particular sin. He didn't do that sin and he didn't do that sin for you because you do do that sin. You are righteous right now while and in you're in that sin. You are righteous while you're mean. You are righteous while you're lusting. You are righteous while you're lying. You are righteous while you're talking bad about somebody. You are righteous while you're doing that. And when that settles in, guess what? You don't want to do it. Because you already have what you're looking for. When you read the Gospels, it's really fascinating. 
When you read the Gospels, you're watching Jesus resist Satan, resist temptation, resist sin, and you watch him love others perfectly, continuously, all the time. And you know what you're watching? You're watching him in that moment do it for you. His continual obedience is a matter of life and death in the Gospels that you and I get to read while it happened and when he resisted the evil one. Remember, Adam is made and he doesn't resist the evil one. Jesus is baptized and his ministry goes forward and he goes into the evil one and he resists the temptations of the evil one. It's a matter of life and death every time Jesus loves somebody because he's loving them for you because you don't. It's a matter of life and death every time he resists sin because he's resisting sin for you because you don't. Jesus' obedience is your obedience. That's your story. That's where you find your life.